Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Nora, and I am a member here. Today's reading will be from Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word for us today. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering you is the truth. These were the words of Morpheus in the 1999 science fiction classic, The Matrix. And of course, Neo took the red pill of truth, and it led him to wake up to a very shocking situation in his his existence, right? He woke up and he realized he was in some kind of vat of liquid and his body was connected to all these electrodes and his brain was plugged into a computer program called the Matrix. And he looked around and he saw that he was one of millions of human beings that were basically functioning as human batteries to supply electricity to the machines who'd become sentient and taken over the world. And so a machine comes, disconnects him from the electrodes, disconnects his brain and flushes him out of the system where Morpheus and his team gather him and rehabilitate him and enlist him in the battle against the machines. Now, I hesitate to use this example as an illustration because I'm not trying to promote the movie The Matrix, right? It's it's excessively violent, and uh, uh, I'm not recommending it, even though I like it. (laughs) But... uh, uh, But I am trying to focus on this scene of Neo taking the red pill of truth and waking up to a shocking reality, but also being set free. And the red pill and the blue pill are kind of cultural symbols that go beyond the movie of The Matrix, especially in philosophical circles. They represent two kinds of people. There are people who like to take the blue pill. They like to live in the somewhat blissful illusions that they may create in their own mind or they may take from somebody outside, but they don't really want to be serious about the truth. They don't want to look hard at life. They just like to live in their illusions. Those who take the red pill, however, are those who have the courage to look at the sometimes painful truth about reality, even if it's painful. So today as we begin our new series in Ecclesiastes, I use this illustration because I think Ecclesiastes is kind of the red pill of the Bible. It's the sometimes painful truth about reality. Now in a sense, 
the whole Bible is the, red, is the red pill of truth, right? The Bible is the truth about reality. So I'm not trying to say that Ecclesiastes is in a different way from that, but Ecclesiastes has a very unique way of approaching truth that is very different from the rest of the Bible, and it can be somewhat shocking. Some of you have expressed to me that you're really excited about this series in Ecclesiastes, that Ecclesiastes is one of your favorite books, but I've also heard from others that have said that you've studied Ecclesiastes and it's kind of a dark and depressing book. You know, are you sure you really want to spend 12 weeks in this? And I get it. I get it. I believe it, is, it is a difficult book, and it does talk about difficult things. But I believe that Ecclesiastes is part of inspired Scripture given to us by God as a necessary truth for our lives today. But I realize Ecclesiastes can be somewhat disorienting because it's so different. There's two unique characteristics of Ecclesiastes that I want to talk about as we introduce this book today. The first is that it is shocking, and I think it's meant to be shocking. Chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. That's shocking. That's not what we expect to read in the Bible necessarily. See, Ecclesiastes says things that we sometimes think, maybe even unconsciously, but they're thoughts that we usually keep just below the surface, and we're hesitant, maybe even afraid to speak about them and follow these thoughts to their logical conclusions for fear of what they might suggest. Ecclesiastes brings many of the difficult issues of life to light and honestly pursues them to their sometimes painful ends. And I think we need this, especially as Christians. For many people today and throughout history, life on planet Earth, although it has some happy moments, is most often hard and filled with pain and disappointment. Christians are sometimes perceived as being simple-minded, maybe naive, as those who try to put a Band-Aid on the gaping wound of reality with cliches like, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good, right? So I think Ecclesiastes is meant to help us move away from being a cliche Christian to a wise Christian who does believe that God is good, but we also understand and recognize and can admit that sometimes it is very difficult to see the goodness of God in this world. Ecclesiastes can also help us becoming from becoming cynical or skeptical when we are disillusioned and hurt by life. So there's a brand of Christianity that suggests that following Jesus is about finding your best life now and that faith in God is supposed to free us from the pain and trouble of life. When reality doesn't turn out this way, skepticism can set in because we, have, we feel like we've been duped. Now, this is not what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that if we're going to follow him, that we will have trouble in this life, even though he's overcome uh, the world. Ecclesiastes acknowledges this reality and identifies with it and helps us to expect and accept the sufferings of this present time. So not only is Ecclesiastes shocking, but it's also puzzling it's puzzling. Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, I think wrote Ecclesiastes, we'll talk about that in a minute, 
but he also wrote Proverbs. And in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, um, Solomon refers to um, something he calls the words of the wise and their riddles. And he says, we need wisdom to understand the words of the wise and their riddles. And I think there are a lot of, that, that's what Ecclesiastes is. It's the words of the wise and their riddles. There are a lot of riddles in Ecclesiastes, things that are, are difficult to understand. They're somewhat enigmatic. Let me give you some puzzling examples from the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was evil to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. That's in the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 18. God is testing the sons of men that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Chapter 7, verse 16. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Wait a second. I thought I was supposed to be righteous. I thought I was supposed to be wise. What is this saying? Chapter 10, verse 19. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. <laughs> what is that talking about? Chapter 11, verse 3. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. <laughs> now, this is actually one of my favorite verses, and it's actually been very helpful to me in my life, especially in my business. And we're going to talk about what it means in about 11 weeks, so uh, hopefully you can come back at that time. <laughs> Ecclesiastes is a difficult and enigmatic book. These are just a few examples. We could point to others. It requires long-term meditation and pondering. The picture that comes to my mind is Gandalf, you know, smoking his pipe in front of the fire, muttering riddles in the dark, you know, or standing out front of the gate of Moriah and, and trying to figure out the riddle to get in. So, you know, this is how we want to approach Ecclesiastes. It's not something that you're going to just read once and understand. There is gold in the book, but it is gold that you have to dig deep for. So that's what we hope to do in the next couple of weeks. So it's unique because of its shocking, because it's shocking, it's puzzling. Let me say a few words about the authorship of Ecclesiastes. And this can be a, a sticky subject, so I'll, I'll try to navigate this carefully. Um, but all commentators agreed for thousands of years in Jewish and Christian history that Solomon was the author of Ecclesiastes. As far as I can tell, it was in 1645 that the first critical commentary doubted the scholarship of Solomon. And it has become commonplace, or I would say popular today, for most modern scholars who, to doubt that Solomon wrote this book. There's been much ink spilled. There's been many arguments made. I've read many of them. I will say that there is no proof that Solomon did not write Ecclesiastes. There are many questions. There are issues that, are, that, that, that make, it, you know, make one question and make one wonder. It's hard to be dogmatic. You can't really be dogmatic about this issue. I'll put my cards out on the table. And I'll just say, I think the best explanation of all the evidence is that it was written by Solomon. But regardless of whether you agree with me on that or not, even if it was not Solomon, whoever did write the book wrote it as if they were Solomon. Nobody disagrees about that. So why did either Solomon write it, or why did someone write it as if they were Solomon? 
Let's look into that a little bit. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, there was only one son of David who was king in Jerusalem. That was Solomon. That's why it seems very clear that it was Solomon. And yet, it doesn't say the words of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, like the introductions to Proverbs and Song of Solomon do. So, some people suggest maybe the author is trying to give us a hint here that it's not Solomon. Or it's Solomon, he's trying to say something about himself with this word. So the words of the preacher, this is literally, the, the Hebrew word here is kohelet, and sometimes I'll, I'll say kohelet when referring to the author. And kohelet is a very interesting word. It means an assembler. The Greek word is ecclesiastes. That's where we get the, the title for this book. It could be, in Greek it reads the words of ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is an interesting word. It's where we get the word for church. The, word, the Greek word for church is ecclesia, and it means an assembly. And so Kohelet, or Ecclesiastes, is one who assembles. It's the assembler. It's the one who brings people together. And, 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 and Solomon was the great assembler of Israel. He ruled at the height of Israel's power. He ruled when Israel was still a united nation. All 12 tribes were together, and he built the temple in Jerusalem. For the first time, all 12 tribes of, of Israel came to a central location in Jerusalem at the temple that Solomon built, and Solomon was the one who brought them together. We read this in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled, there's our word, the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, and all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon. A great assembly, and Solomon led it, and not only at this time, at the dedication of the temple, but three times every year, year after year, Solomon would gather all the people to Israel to assemble. So that's what we think Kohelet. I mean, that's the best explanation of why he calls himself a, a, a Kohelet. It's translated preacher because... That's what preachers are supposed to do. We're supposed to assemble people together to hear the Word of God. But literally, it's the assembler. Now, not only was Solomon the assembler, but there's some other interesting things about Solomon that many of you may already know. Solomon became king when he was about 30 years old, and he went to Shiloh. Before the temple was built, There was the, the tabernacle was at Shiloh, and he offered thousands of sacrifices to the Lord at the beginning of his kingship. He was seeking the Lord's presence and the Lord's blessing. And we read that God appeared to him when he was worshiping there, and God said something to Solomon that he never said to anyone else. He appeared to him in a dream, and he said, Solomon, ask whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And so Solomon, as the story goes, he said, Lord, I ask for wisdom to govern your people. I'm like a little child. I'm, I'm young. I don't, know how, I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. I don't know how to... I'm overwhelmed by this task of being the king of your people. Would you give me wisdom to be a wise king? Now, this pleased the Lord. We read about this in 1 Kings chapter 3. We read God's response. He says this, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. That's, that's some pretty amazing words right there. 
I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. This is the perspective of Ecclesiastes. We'll see, especially in chapter 2, the author identifies himself as a king who is the wisest and richest that has been in Jerusalem. That may sound arrogant, but he's going off the words that God told him, right? Apparently here, the author is saying that. So we need to understand that Solomon's wisdom went beyond Israel. I think that's an important point here. Notice in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, we see that he had sort of an international influence. It says this, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measurement and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezrahite, and Haman, and Kelkol, and Dardanellas, the sons of Mahon. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is, this is the Solomon that's presented to us in the Old Testament. We know later there's the story of the Queen of Sheba, who was from Ethiopia, a very distant country. She had heard of the wisdom of Solomon. She came personally to examine Solomon and ask him questions. And at the end of that, she was, she was flabbergasted, right? She's like, I, I heard that you were wise, but it's, your wisdom goes beyond even what I had heard. So this is the kind of reputation that Solomon had, not just in Israel, but beyond Israel. So he was inter interacting with and engaging with and dialoguing with, uh, with wise people from Egypt and from all these different surrounding nations. And he, it says, surpassed them all, and people came to hear his wisdom. 1 Kings 10, 23 and 24, Thus King Solomon excelled, excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. See, I think Ecclesiastes is Solomon's magnum opus. I think it's his great work, written at the height of his wisdom and power, presenting a God-centered worldview to the kings and philosophers of the ancient East. And his insight he is sharing with them is how to fear God and find joy in the futility of life. Now, whether you agree with me on this point or not, I'm not sure it matters too much. But I believe that this is the way we want to approach uh, this book. If Solomon didn't write it, whoever did write it was, was writing in the guise of Solomon as is described here in Scripture. Does that make sense? But whatever we think about the authorship, what we need to recognize is that Ecclesiastes is in, is, has traditionally been accepted as inspired Scripture. And I think that's what's most important of all. 2 Timothy 2, 15-17 is where we, we read about the inspiration of Scripture. Notice what Paul says to Timothy here. He says, From childhood you have known the sacred writings. Ecclesiastes is part of that description there. When Paul says that to Timothy, he's talking about Ecclesiastes and the whole Old Testament. These sacred writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm hoping this will do, this study in Ecclesiastes will do. It will give us wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate 
equipped for every good work. Now, remember when Paul wrote this to Timothy, the New Testament did not exist. He was writing it as he, as he wrote this, but he didn't know he was writing the New Testament, right? He's talking about Scripture here, about old, what we know as the Old Testament. That's what he's saying was God-breathed, was inspired by God. This is what we must, I believe, all agree on if we're going to find any value from the book of Ecclesiastes, that it is God-breathed, inspired Scripture. And I say this because, you know, I've read a lot of different commentaries, a lot of different ideas and interpretations of Ecclesiastes out there, even within conservative evangelical circles. And what I've noticed is that even though some commentators may sign the statement of biblical inspiration, the interpretations that they propound, I think, deny the inspiration of Ecclesiastes. In other words, it would be better if they just came out and honestly said, I don't think Ecclesiastes should be is inspired. I don't think it should be in the Old Testament canon. That would be better than, than subtly trying to present interpretations about Ecclesiastes that, that are of no value to us. So we must... We must be aware. There's a lot of different ideas. There's some, there's some perspectives that see the author of Ecclesiastes as sort of a Jewish skeptic who in it indirectly denies the goodness of God, maybe even the existence of God. A similar view is that Ecclesiastes is written by an erratic and sometimes contradictory, confused, wise man. I know when I was younger, I heard a lot of times that people say, well, uh, maybe Solomon wrote it after he fell away from the Lord in his old age. We read about that. And then maybe he came back and then he wrote Ecclesiastes about his experience. But we have no evidence that Solomon ever came back after he fell away. And I think it's, that's, that's completely inconsistent with what we read of in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, I believe, is the inspired, God-breathed, work of God, a human author inspired by God to give us truth about what it means to fear God. So this is the big takeaway. Ecclesiastes is inspired by God and useful for us today. No matter what you think about authorship, hopefully we can agree on this one point. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of keys to understanding Ecclesiastes. There's, there's three things that I think will help us as we go through this book. The first is the phrase, under the sun, under the sun. We'll read this 29 times in these 12 chapters. Now, I think under the sun means more than just on the earth. One commentator said that under the sun refers to the troubled life of humanity in this world against the inevitable background of death. One Jewish commentator says Ecclesiastes was written with Genesis 3 open before him, and I think that's what we want to understand with this idea of under the sun. Under the sun is life on earth since we have fallen, right? Since, since human beings have fallen. Ecclesiastes is sort of teasing out, describing, explaining, interacting with what it means to live in a fallen world. Remember God said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Death is a central theme of Ecclesiastes. But there was more than even death, right? God pronounced some judgments on Adam and Eve after they ate from the tree. We'll look at this more next week in detail, but remember, he said there'd be enmity between the seed of the snake and the seed of the woman. He said that there'd be, there'd be pain in childbirth. He said that there would be conflict in marriage. He said to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. This describes some kind of conflict in the closest of human relationships. 
He said that the ground would be cursed and that by the sweat of your brow, man would, would eke a living out of, of, of life. And then, and then from dust you came, to dust you shall return. So, so, you know, there's a lot in the fall of mankind that Ecclesiastes is trying to tease out and trying to say, this is what it's like to live under the sun. Ecclesiastes hints at, but does not discuss the possibility of life after death. The perspective is limited to life on earth that ends in death. And so the takeaway is we must understand and accept the truth about where we are. Where are we? We're under the sun. The second key to understanding Ecclesiastes is, is the, a triad of words, vanity, evil, and trouble. These three words appear over a hundred times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the words that most people focus on is vanity. Vanity, vanity is all is vanity. That's what it opens up with. That word occurs 38 times. And the Greek word, or, I'm sorry, the, the Hebrew word here is hevel. It's very difficult to come up with a definition of vanity. It literally means breath or vapor. So like you go out on a cold morning and you breathe, you see your breath for a moment and then it disappears. That's hevel, right? So everything is hevel, right? What does that mean? I think that it's best not to try to come up with a, a, a good definition of Havel. I think it's best to let Solomon define Havel for us as we go through the book. He's going to do that. He'll say, I saw this. It was vanity. I saw that. It was vanity. I saw this, this, and this. They were all vanity, right? So he's going to tell us what he, what he means by vanity. But if I, had to, if I had to pick one verse that would summarize best what vanity means, it would be chapter 1, verse 15. And it's simply this, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I'm a carpenter, you know, I don't like things that are crooked. You have to straighten them out, right? But what if you couldn't straighten it out? That's, that's frustration, that's vanity, right? And that's what, that's what I think is the best definition. What is crooked cannot be made straight. The takeaway for us here is we must understand and accept the truth about what we experience under the sun. We experience vanity, evil, and trouble. The third key to understanding Ecclesiastes is God. God. God is mentioned 33 times, and he is, without a doubt, the central character of this book. Kohelet is not an atheist or an agnostic. He is a believer. He is a man of faith. Now, what's really interesting is the word or the name that is used for God here is not the traditional Hebrew name of Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. That was the, the, the name that God gave to Israel in particular. Remember when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and Moses said, well, who am I going to tell the people sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. He said, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. That's Yahweh. That's the name Yahweh. And so God became known as Yahweh as he, as he uh, delivered the people out of Egypt. He took them to Sinai, made a covenant with them. He brought them into the promised land and he continued to make covenants with David and, and, and with the people. Right? That's Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. 
But Solomon never uses that name in Ecclesiastes. He only uses the name Elohim. Elohim is a more general name for God. It, it describes him as the creator, the maker of all things, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, I think this is very, very significant. Again, remember, Solomon was dialoguing and debating with the, the, the philosophers and the wise men and the kings. Is that me? Uh, sorry about that. Uh, he was debating with, he, he was having an international dialogue with many people outside of Jerusalem. So I think this, that, that's why I think Ecclesiastes has sort of an evangelistic feel, right? Maybe even an apologetic feel. This is, he's, he's representing the Jewish God, Yahweh, to a primarily maybe non-Jewish audience. So he's using the, the name Elohim. Now, interestingly enough, in Ecclesiastes, God is identified in several different ways, but he's identified as the giver, the giver. And the first thing that, he's that he gives is vanity, evil, and trouble. Now, this may be a difficult subject for, for, for us here today. It's something to get your head around. But notice chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. It is an evil business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Chapter 7, verse 13, again, uh, the author says, Consider the work of God. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Right? We said vanity is that we can't straighten what is crooked. Well, who made it crooked? He says here, God made it crooked. That's why we can't straighten it out. Something only God can straighten out. All right? But God is the giver of vanity, evil, and trouble. Now, We'll talk about this more as we go through Ecclesiastes. We have to be careful as we talk about this. But nonetheless, this is acknowledged in Ecclesiastes, and it's a key to understanding this book. But God is also acknowledged as the giver of joy. This is my favorite part. Seventeen times joy is mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's a consistent theme throughout. And God is the author and giver of joy. Notice verse, chapter 2, verse 25. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And again in chapter 3, verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now there are some beautiful passages in Ecclesiastes about the joyful life, the good life, the life that God can give us in the midst of the futility that we experience. And third, God is the ultimate judge. We read the conclusion earlier at the end of the book. It says, this is the conclusion when all else has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for he will bring everything into judgment, whether good or evil. Right? So God is presented as the ultimate judge. And so the conclusion is fear God. Fear God. This is the central theme repeated throughout the book from various angles. In fact, Ecclesiastes is teaching us what it means to fear God, how to fear God, why we should fear God. So the takeaway here is we must understand and accept who God is and how we should respond to him. And it's summarized by we should fear God. So 
as we close, let me just give you a couple of suggestions how to get the most from the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be going through it in, in the next 11 or 12 weeks or so. So I want to encourage you, try to listen to the, read or listen to the whole book in one setting if you can. Try to just get a big picture of the whole book. And then I would suggest that try each week to read the next week's section that we'll be uh, going over on Sunday morning every day if you can, even twice a day if possible. At the bottom of your second page of your bulletin, every week, I don't know if you've noticed, it says next Sunday, Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 15. So I'm not following the chapter breakdown exactly, but this will give you each week what section we're going to be looking at the, the following Sunday. So if you can, try to read or listen to it every day. Become as familiar as you can with the passage. Try to look for key words or phrases or repeated ideas. Try to understand the structure of the passage. Ask yourself, what is he saying here? Right? Try to understand. The other thing I would suggest is memorize Romans 8, 18 to 26. That was our call to worship this morning. It's on the back of these little bookmarks that I put on the chairs. Uh, I think this is a great grid to read Ecclesiastes through. And I think Paul is referring specifically to Ecclesiastes in these verses. Right? Uh, notice he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. When we get to chapter 3, there's a, it's all about time and the sufferings of this present time. I think Paul's alluding to that here. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Right? Futility is the Greek word that translates havel. Paul is directly referring here to Ecclesiastes. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. It's not something we want. It's not something we like. But because of him who subjected it. Who's that? It's God. God is the one that subjected creation to futility. See, it's affirmed in the New Testament by Paul as well. But why did he do this? In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Right? So he paints a picture of childbirth, the pains of childbirth. God is, is producing something. He's birthing something. It's going to be revealed in the future, but right now we're experiencing the pains of it. The pains of childbirth is the metaphor. Right? So I think uh, if, in the next 12 weeks, if you could memorize these verses from Romans, I think it'll be a blessing to you. I mean, Romans 8 is a great chapter to memorize in general, but these verses in particular for our series through Ecclesiastes. The last thing I would say is let's look for the goads and nails in Ecclesiastes. The goads and nails. Chapter 12, verse 11 talks about goads and nails. It says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, I, there, there, I believe there's a clear reference here to divine inspiration. I believe the shepherd is, is a reference to the shepherd of Israel, which would be Yahweh, the Lord. But he's saying that the words of the wise are like goads. What's a goad? Well, a goad was a shepherd's, a shepherd's tool. It was a stick with a, with a sharp point on the end, and it was used for herding cattle. So, you know, you got a big, a big cow that's going the wrong direction. You take this goad and you start poking it to turn it around and get it going in the right direction. That's what the words of the wise are like. Sometimes they're painful. You feel like you're being poked. You're being with a sharp stick, right? But it's to get you to turn around. It's against you to change your thinking to change your direction. 
And so we want to look for the goads in Ecclesiastes, the things that might be difficult, that might be a little painful, but they get us to change our direction, to change our mindset. And the nails, notice it says, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Nails were also tools of the shepherd to nail down their tent so that when the storms came, their tent wouldn't be blown away, right? And so he's saying these collected sayings are like nails. They're like, they're like firmly embedded things that you can count on, that, that, that you can depend upon, right? And the, the words of the wise given by the one shepherd are things that we can live our lives by, truths that we can live our lives by and, and, and be grounded in. The song we sang just before the message, Speak, O Lord, it has a, a, a great description of these nails in it. In the third verse it said, Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. Those are the nails that we're looking for. Right? Truths that were true when the world was created and truths that will still be true throughout eternity. These are the truths that we want to live our lives by, to hang our lives by. Right? And, and, and they, they are things that will, will serve us well. I'm excited for this series. Uh, I really am. This is, uh, you know, if I had to pick a favorite book, I don't know if I could. Right? I, have, I have my top five, though, and Ecclesiastes is in the top five. And it's one of my favorite because as a young man, I, did, I struggled with depression, especially in my 20s and 30s. I had some, some serious bouts with depression over time. And, and, and what has helped me more than anything in my life in overcoming depression is the book of Ecclesiastes. It it's, may seem strange because I know for some of you it, it, it's depressing, right? <laughs> but, but I can tell you that for me it has helped me uh, overcome depression in my life, and it's helped me find more joy. And, and so I think, I hope, I pray that that's the effect that it will have for us as a church body, that, that we will be able to understand how to find joy in the futility of life. Um, I have 10 commentaries here. They're written by a man named Derek Kidner. It's, it's very accessible. It's easily read, readable. Uh, they're free if you would like to take them. Uh, I just ask that only take it if you're sure you're going to read it. And if you take it and don't read it, give it to somebody who will, right? But uh, feel free to take that. Uh, let's, let's close in prayer this morning, and then we'll prepare for communion. God, we are humbled as we come before you this morning. You are a great God, and... Uh, we, are, we are just humbled in your presence, Lord. We realize there are many, many things in life that we do not understand and we struggle with. We pray that as we uh, step into this series, um, Lord, that you will use your words to turn us around where we need to be turned around, but also to comfort us, Lord, also to to teach us how to rightly relate to you and to find the joy that only you can give. We pray for your glory and our good in Jesus' name.